We are continuing our sermon series about being in the wilderness, and we have been hearing stories of people who are members here at Martha Bowman who, with great courage, have shared with us their stories. We've, we've heard from L.C. Um, she is our, um, our assistant youth uh, coordinator here. I'm not sure what her exact title, <laughs> title is, but Elsie, uh, who works with our teenagers, and she talked about being in a time of, of loneliness uh, when she was uh, right out of college and here in Macon and just trying to make it as an adult uh, and the financial stress and what that looked like and how this church and, and many of you circled around her and, uh, and provided her with community and the help that she needed as she walked through that wilderness. Uh, we've heard from Anna Spinks uh, as she shared her story of wilderness. Uh, Dion Delard, who talked about the death of her husband uh, and what that was like for them as they walked through as a family, grief. Uh, we heard from Max Wood as he talked about being in Baghdad, uh, serving our nation there in just a time of wilderness and spiritual drought and how God sustained him in that place. And as we looked at their stories, we've also looked looked at the story of Jesus as we have been following along here and looking at also the people of Israel as they went through the wilderness. And these stories, we see stories of redemption. We see stories of grace. We see stories of God's presence as he sustains us, as he teaches us, as he carries us through the wilderness. Uh, today is the last Sunday in this series. And, uh, and today we have a, a video, a story from Julie Henderson. Uh, Julie typically worships in the traditional service at 11 o'clock, but I invite you to uh, listen to Julie as she talks about her story from the wilderness this morning. I'm Julie. I'm married to Sam Henderson. We have two sons, Sam III and Mike. Um, we moved to Macon in 2000 um, and have been at Martha Bowman probably about 15 years. I was 21 years old newly married, getting ready to start my first year as a teacher. Everything should have been great. But I was struck down by a monster known as depression. There were days I just didn't feel like going on. I didn't want to put one foot in front of the other. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. I'd been brought up in the church, but I just couldn't feel God. My mother got me into treatment with our family physician. He helped me with some medication for anxiety. Um, I, my husband or my parents used to have to take me to the emergency room because I would hyperventilate so bad like I couldn't breathe. I began, began to feel more just rejected by God and, and the things that I had always believed weren't happening for me. And then after about four or five months of this, I began to look forward to Sunday mornings. And the reason I did was because when I go to church, I felt God there. And then eventually I realized that if I felt Him there, I could feel Him other places. And so I sought out times when I could just be with Him. And thus I began to get a little stronger, and then I'd hit a bump in the road, and I'd go down again. It was just so, so frustrating. And I guess my darkest, darkest time in the wilderness was one night when I just felt like I did not want to face another day. I did not want to go through this anymore. The pain was too much. I questioned why. why what's the point? Why am I even here? 
I picked up my father-in-law's pistol and I held it in my hand sitting on the side of the bed. And I just thought it could be over that quickly, no more pain. And that's when God just smacked me in the head and told me no. And he let me know I had more, he had more in store for me, that that was not the end. And as I, I, can, I can feel myself sitting there right now and finally putting the gun back in the drawer and walked out and I began to get better. I truly began to get better in a real sense. And nine months later, became pregnant with my first child. From there, entered the most wonderful part of my life as a mother, as a teacher, a wife, daughter, friend, all of those things came back to me. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that there haven't been bad times since then, but there's never been another time when I even thought of ending my life. So now when I'm at the darkest times, there's always that flicker of light at the, at the end of the tunnel, and that's hope. And before, there was no hope. I just didn't have it. I've often wondered since, why in all those months that I was praying, didn't I, I get an answer? Um, and I think when God works His miracles, sometimes we have to be in the throes of desperation. That's where you have to be. And He steps forward. That was my personal, first, first personal encounter with God. There have been many since, but that was my first real one when he walked me out of the desert. And I was just thankful. This is Julie Henderson. This was my story of my time in the wilderness. What a powerful story. There's so many things I, I, I appreciate about what she said in her story. Um, she doesn't paint it with rose-colored glasses. Uh, she doesn't say, and after that moment, all my problems went away. But one of the things that Julie said in there, and I wonder if you've ever had a similar experience, where she said, I kept praying, and I kept praying, and I kept praying, and God was not answering my prayer. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, where there was something that you were wanting to change. Maybe it was a family thing. Maybe it was a job thing. Maybe it was a health thing, and you were kept praying and asking God, and it wasn't answering your prayers. You weren't seeing relief. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was <clears throat> sitting with one of our, our members here at the church in the emergency room. Uh, this person has had an ongoing battle with cancer, and as we sat there in the emergency room and we talked and we prayed, one of the things that 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 this person said was, you know, the pain from, from this disease has been so great. I cannot tell you how many nights. I have cried out at night and said, oh God, would you please give me relief? Will you please give me relief from this pain? But there has not been relief. And my wife and I, we hold each other at night in our bed and we cry and we cry and we cry. And so I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you were asking, where you were hoping for something different, but it wasn't happening. And you know, I'm not talking about those prayers where, you know, you're riding around the public's uh, parking lot and you're hoping for for a good parking place, or maybe you're 
looking at your bank account and thinking, you know, if I could just win the lottery right now, things would really look up for me. Or maybe you're getting ready to go to some, uh, some of our teenagers. Maybe you've got some social event you're getting ready to go to. And it's like, man, I need just the right dress, you know? So I've prayed all those things, just saying. <laughs> but, but I'm talking about those prayers where there is this place where there is this gap between what you're praying and asking God for and what is reality, what is happening. Today we're looking at two stories, and they are in your bulletins there. One is from, our old, from the Old Testament. One is from the New Testament. One is from the, the, the story of the Exodus, the people of God, as they have left Egypt, they have gone through the Red Sea. They are now out in the wilderness. One is one example is from their story, and the other is from Jesus. And this is uh, at Gethsemane. Uh, this is from his story, the night before he is crucified. But two times where they were crying out, asking God for an answer, and it seemed as if the answer was not coming. Let's look at their stories and let's see what we can learn about our story and our wilderness story as we look. At these two passages. The first one there that you have in front of you is from Exodus. And I want to just set this up so you can know when this happens in their journey. But the people of God are about two and a half months uh, on in the wilderness now. They've left Egypt. They just saw all the plagues, all the miracles, everything that God did to deliver them from over 500 years or around 500 years of slavery. And now, though, they are in the wilderness and they have run out of food. They have run out of rations. So all of the food that they might have taken with them as they left Egypt, it is now dwindling and gone. So in our scriptures here, Moses tells us that they are in the desert. And while they are in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. One of the things that we, we can be critical of these, of these Hebrew people is how just in a nanosecond, I mean just in a moment, they can go from having great faith in God to just ready to throw the towel in, where they are grumbling and they are complaining, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, didn't you, you're just, it's just been two and a half months. Didn't you see God part the Red Sea? Didn't you see all the wonderful miracles that God did? And already their doubt, their worries, their fears are just overwhelming them. One of the things that I think is interesting, and if you're taking notes, I, I like to circle things that kind of pop off the page to me when I'm reading the scriptures. But when I read this passage, and, it, and it's fairly familiar, I've, 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 you know, read the story of the Exodus multiple times, you know, over the years, but something stood out to me this time, and, and I want to draw your attention to it. In verse 3, the Israelites said this. They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. And if you're underlining, it might be something that you might want to circle and maybe put a question mark beside it. Here's the thing that I asked myself, I thought, and I wondered, I was curious about, I thought, what did they mean by that? What does that phrase mean? What were they saying? What were they hoping for? And I thought about this, when had they 
experienced someone die by the Lord's hand. Not, not that this person got sick and died, not this, that this person got killed in battle, but that it was as if definitive that the Lord's hand had killed someone. And that's what they were wishing and hoping for. The thing that came to my mind, and I don't know, I've not checked this out with any commentary, so this is just Fran's interpretation, and you tell me what you think. This is what I thought. The night of the Passover, the night that they were leaving Egypt, we know that the death angel passed over the homes of the Egyptians and that by the Lord's hand, the firstborn in all of the Egyptian homes died. And I thought, were they hoping and wishing that that it would have been better for them that they would have died by the Lord's hand the night of the Passover than to have been in the middle of their circumstances right now? And I thought, what was it about that moment that would have been an appeal to them? Uh, And this is what I thought, was that to die by the Lord's hand in that way, I'm guessing that it would have been instantaneous. It would have been over in a moment. And it it reminded me of Julie's story. She said that she had been crying out to God. She'd been crying out to God. She'd been asking God for help. And when she, she had her father-in-law's gun, she said, it could all be over in just a moment. And I wondered if that's what they were saying. We don't want to be in this wilderness. We, We wish that we could have an escape hatch. We wish that we could just, in a moment, be out of this circumstance. I remember when I was a young mom and and I had three kids and, you know, life at times was overwhelming. And I used to have this fantasy and I don't know, you know, I don't know if any moms, it it wasn't about anything inappropriate, you know, but this was my fantasy when I would go to the grocery store is that I would get in the car without the kids, you know, be at home with Mark or Mark's parents or something. And then I would just start driving west. I would just drive west. I would go west and west and west, catch an interstate west. And the next thing I would imagine myself swimming in the Pacific Ocean and never coming back home. <laughs> you laugh, but that's what I would imagine. I'm driving, you know, I'm driving to Publix, driving to Kroger, and I'm imagining that I never come back home. And so I don't know if you've ever had those moments, but I think before we judge the Israelites too harshly, Maybe you have experienced something like that. And I think that's what we're asking ourselves today is what do we do in the gap and in the tension between what we're hoping and wishing for and our present reality? As we now move to the New Testament and as we move to Jesus, um, I want to set the story up for you. Uh, We are personally a couple of weeks out. Next Sunday will be Palm Sunday when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. We begin what is known as Holy Week where we remember the the events in Jesus' life leading up to uh, Easter. We are going to journey with Jesus uh, to to the crucifixion and then on Easter Sunday in two weeks to the resurrection. But the story that I have for us happens the night before Jesus is crucified. That evening, Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples there in the city in Jerusalem. They have gathered, and he has taken the bread, and he has broken it, and he has told them, this is going to be, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you. He has taken the cup of wine, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is about to be shed for you. And they sing a hymn. Uh, Judas, he is, is, you know, Jesus lets the group know that Judas is, or that someone is going 
going to betray him. They sing a hymn. They walk out of that room. They walk out of the city. And for those of you who have been to Jerusalem or you've seen the city in pictures, um, they walk out of the city. They, there's a hill. It's up on a high mountain. They go down. They go through the Kidron Valley. And, and the gospel writers tell us that where they go next that evening is they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is, it is an olive garden. It is, a, it is a grove of olive trees. And as you sit there uh, today, you can see Jerusalem right there. So you You've got Jerusalem on one hill. You've got the Mount of Olives on the other with the valley in between. The gospel writers tell us what Jesus does next as they go into the garden. Join me as we read this in verse 36 from Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And as he said those words, and if you're, and again, if you're taking notes and you want to underline, I invite you to underline that phrase, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I wonder if in his mind and in his ears, he could hear the story. He could hear the Hebrews in the wilderness saying, oh, we wish that we could have died by the Lord's hand. Now, Jesus is about to die, and he knows that, but it is not going to be quick, and it is not going to be easy, because he is about to experience one of the greatest sufferings that we've ever, you know, have a story of, and he is about to become our sacrificial lamb, our Passover lamb, with the sins of the world. They're about to be placed on him as he dies for you and for me, and in that moment, he says, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What does Jesus do next? What Jesus does next is he begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God. And he prays three prayers. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these to you as Matthew records them. He says, the first it says that he fell with his face to the ground. I just want you to picture that with me for a moment. That is not a, oh, Jesus, breath's my friend. You know how we pray just those little prayers? This is fallen on your face, face to the ground, crying out to God Almighty, his Father. And he says, my Father. And I love that too. He doesn't say, oh God, oh Lord, oh Jehovah. It's very intimate language there. Papa, Papa, Padre is, is what that word looks like in the Greek. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I wonder about that prayer because didn't Jesus already know what was about to happen? Didn't Jesus already know that from the very book of Exodus when they, you know, they killed the Passover lamb and, and all the prophecies that one day that there would be a Messiah who was going to come and take on the sins of the whole world? Didn't he already know that it wasn't possible? But in that moment, you see the humanity of his prayer. You see him praying, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he prays the prayer of surrender. And he says, yet, not as I will, but as you will. He prays the second time that Matthew records, and he changes his words just a little bit. It says he went away a second time, and he prayed, my father, 
if it is not possible. The first time he says, Lord, if it's possible, you know, can this cup be taken away? The second time he says, and, and to me, we're seeing degrees of surrender. To then the next time he says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And you see this place of surrendering into the will of God. It wasn't easy. It wasn't automatic. It was a place of real struggle as he surrendered to the will of God. And so then Matthew tells us that a third time, so he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time. And this time, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus said. He said, he just prayed the same thing. And I, I like that because in my mind, it reminds me of that moment in our lives when we just keep praying the same thing over and over and over. But what Jesus demonstrates and shows for us here, I think, is where we experience God's sustaining grace for what is before us. Because I believe somewhere between what we're praying and what is our reality, there's this gap, there's this tension. And I think our temptation is that we want to hit the eject button. We want to, we want to get out of this circumstance. But what Jesus models for us is that place of surrender to the will of God in this moment. And I believe that when we surrender to God, full surrender, Lord, not your will, but mine be done. Not my will, but your be, yours be done. I think that's where we experience God's sustaining, empowering grace for what is before us. One of my favorite uh, stories uh, is from a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. And Corrie was a, a Christian, a Dutch Christian that lived during the Holocaust. And she and her family would hide um, Jewish people in their home. And they had a, a room that they hid them in. But when jo Corrie was a little girl, um, her Sunday school teacher had been talking to them about different martyrs, the martyrs of the faith. And she was talking to her dad one time. And she said, Dad, she said, I'm so concerned and worried that if Jesus ever calls me to be a martyr, if Jesus Jesus ever calls me to be a martyr, I won't have the strength to go through it. And her father, in all this wisdom, he said, Corey, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, when we're about to get on the, on the train to go from Harlem to Amsterdam, he said, when do I give you your money for your ticket? He said, do I give it to you three, three weeks before the trip? And she said, no, Daddy, you give it to us. You know, you give me the money for the ticket right before I get on the train. And he said, so it is with God's grace. He said, in the moment when you need God's grace for what's in front of you, your wise heavenly father will give you what you need. I love that. I love that. And to me, that is such a beautiful picture of when you feel that you are in the wilderness and you feel that you're crying out to God and your prayers aren't being answered or you're not seeing it happen the way you had hoped. That place of full surrender, I think, is where we can experience the grace that we need for this moment. And not grace for what's going to happen in one week, not what's going to happen in a year, not what's going to happen in five years. Sometimes we can catastrophize in our minds and we try to play out where this, this road is leading, where this scenario is going. But I think in a place of full surrender, we get the grace that we need for the moment. Just like Corey's father would give her the money for the train ticket.
In Luke's gospel, when he tells about this story, as Jesus prays, and he prays this beautiful prayer of surrender, Lord, if this cup can be taken away, you know, yet not my will, but your will be done. Luke tells us that an angel of God came there in the Garden of Gethsemane and strengthened Jesus. And I love that because it's my hope and my prayer for you and for me when we find ourselves in those moments that as we surrender in prayer to the Lord, surrender our will, that we will find grace and that even the angel of God will come and strengthen us for what is before us. One of the things that um, I recently learned about the Garden of Gethsemane, um, I had the opportunity to go to, um, it's called the Biblical History Museum, and I don't know if any of you have ever been there. If you haven't, it's a great place to go, but it's in LaGrange, Georgia, and they have all these different artifacts there from the Holy Land, and they have set up different replicas of what, uh, you know, some of the, the biblical scenes that we read about in the Bible, kind of what that would have looked like in the day. And in your bulletin there, I've got a couple of pictures that I want to draw you your attention to and some fill-ins. And, um, and Joseph is going to put up one of the first pictures. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? I did not know this. This was new to me. I learned this just about a month ago. It means the press of oils. It's the place where it was an olive press. And I thought about all the places that Jesus could have gone to pray before he was about to be betrayed and crucified. I thought he could have gone somewhere in Jerusalem. They could have stayed there in the upper room. But he chose to go to a place that was called the press of oil, the olive press. And, and the symbolism here is just so incredibly rich for us as to what was about to happen to Jesus. Jesus. And in the first picture that you've got up there, I just want to draw your attention to what would have happened there in Gethsemane, there when they actually had a literal olive press. Olives are very hard. Uh, they, if you've ever, you know, you've got the olive pit, you've got the skin. And so before you could use the olive oil, you had to put uh, the olives in something very similar to this. You would have put the, the, the olives there as they came off the tree there in that trough. And so either a person or a donkey or something would roll this hard stone over the olives there and they would crush them to where they were just like a, a, a paste. And there's a passage in Isaiah where Jesus said, he said, uh, well, Isaiah is, is talking about the Messiah. And he said that he was crushed for our iniquities. And I wonder if there was kind of that, that thing going on in Jesus's head where at Gethsemane, where it is literally olives are being pressed, that in his mind, he was hearing the words of Isaiah saying, I am about to be crushed for the iniquities of my people. Next, as they take this, and, and Joseph, if you want to pull up the, the next picture there for us, um, the next thing that they do is they take that paste, so now everything's been crushed in a paste, and they put it in baskets, and then they take where the, the rock formation is there, kind of that square looking thing, there's a basket underneath there, and then there is the piece of wood which acts as a lever, and then they begin to press the oil, and they press the oil four times. So the first time they put a, they put a stone there, you can see I have too. But when they begin to press the oil, they put the first stone on there and it presses the oil and they catch it there in the trough. And this is the best oil. This is the purest oil. This is the oil that is the finest. And so as a good Hebrew or Jewish person, uh, they would not... Uh, 
They wouldn't use that. They wouldn't consume that oil themselves. But it was a part of the first fruits. It was the oil that they would give to the priest to use as anointing oil, as the oil of anointing uh, in worship. The second time, they would put a second stone on there, and they would press it down. And this time, the oil was not quite as good, but this is the oil that they would use to cook with, to bake with. The next time they would press it a third time, and this oil, the quality was not quite as good anymore, but with this oil, they would use it for their lamps and their lanterns around the house. They would press it a fourth time, and when they pressed it the fourth time, this was the oil that they would use. By this time, it wasn't good for lamps, it wasn't good for cooking, it wasn't good enough for the priests, but it was good enough for soap. And so this is the oil that they would use to, to bathe with and to cleanse themselves. And as we were at the Biblical History Museum, the docent was taking us through this information, and she said, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross, what Jesus was doing for us at Gethsemane. That Jesus, he is, that first one you're filling, he is the anointed one. Just as the oil was given to the priest, Jesus is our Messiah. He is our anointed one. He is the one who loved us so much that he died for us. I think the temptation when we are in our wilderness journey and our prayers aren't being answered and we're wanting to hit the eject button is that sometimes we'll ask the question, God, if these are the circumstances that you've allowed me to be in, do you really love me? Do you care? Do you hear? God, why are you so absent? And I think that in this moment when we meditate and we remember that Jesus is our anointed one, he's our Messiah, we look at the cross, let the cross tell you what Jesus feels about you, not your circumstances. Let the cross tell you how much Jesus loves you, not what in this limited amount of time that we have here on this earth, you were saying that God hasn't answered my prayers the way I want them to be answered, but he loves you. The next thing that the docent told us there, she said, just like the oil was used for cooking, Jesus is our bread of life. And I thought about that in light of our, our, our sermon series. Jesus is the one who gives us that grace to sustain us for what we need today. Not necessarily worrying about what's going to happen in two years, five years, ten years down the road. But the grace that I need today. He is the one that sustains you. Jesus is the third pressing when they use the, the oil for the lamps. That Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And sometimes we don't need the light to tell us what the path is going to look like years from now. Sometimes we just need the light to say, this is what I need for today. I need you to show me, Jesus, what step I need to take just today. He is the light of our, of our path, the light of the world. The last one there, Jesus is the one that cleanses us from all of our sin. He is our cleanses the one who cleanses our soul just like the soap and I love that beautiful picture because you know sometimes we can we can walk away from the Lord when the times are hard when that when the road gets long and I and I think about and I, some of you I've, I've shared this story here before but I think it bears repeating um when my mom, my mom passed away when I was three of cancer. And one of the things that my dad said, my dad walked away from his faith as a result of that. And he told me, and he, and he came back to the Lord later in life, but, but we were talking about it. Uh, and he said, you know, he said, I just, he said, I couldn't reconcile if there was a God who was all powerful and who could do anything. Why did he take 
my wife and, and your mom away from us. He said, you know, I was three when she died. My sisters were five and, and eight. And he said, why would God do that to our family? And so for him, he hit the eject button. He threw in the towel. He had to walk away from his faith. And so Jesus is the one, though, that cleanses our soul, that is our anointed one, that is our bread of life, that is the light of the world. And so I think what Jesus would say is, in the place between that confusion where you don't know what's going on and you're asking the prayers, I think he wants to be our sustaining grace. And I think we find that through surrender, but also meditating and remembering who he is is and what he has done for us. You know, my hope for you and my hope for me is when the days are long that we just don't imagine that we're driving to California and swimming to the Pacific Ocean. Well, maybe you can imagine that. But just come back to your kids. Don't really leave them <laughs> because God is a God that sustains us. And in this world, we might not understand what's happening, but I believe he provides us the grace that we need for every step of the way.